a very warm welcome to everybody this morning. Um, I'm very pleased to see so many people here for this event. Um, what the, the context of this event is the LSE's ninth Space for Thought Literary Festival, which has been taking place all week under the general title of Revolutions. My name is Mary Evans, and I'm chairing this event this morning. Um, this particular event is actually co-hosted by two parts of the LSE, two institutions um, which work here at the LSE. The first is the Middle East Centre, which builds on LSE's long engagement with the Middle East and North Africa and provides a central hub for the wide range of research on the region, which is carried out here at the LSE. The second institution, which is where I am based, is the Gender Institute, which has a global interest in the relations of and about gender. So both of these institutions, and all of us here, are very pleased to welcome back to the LSE our speaker for this morning, Elif Shafak, who is going to talk to us in just a few minutes. But before that talk, can I just say a few things to introduce you to Elif and her work? Elif is an award-winning novelist who is the most widely read. <laughs> I'm so sorry for that, <laughs> and I do apologise for my mispronunciation. Um, the most widely read novelist in Turkey today, writing in both English and Turkish. She is also, and I think this is a very important part of her work and what we are celebrating with her today, is a political commentator and a very inspirational public speaker. She's published 15 books, 10 of which are novels, including the best-selling The Bastard of Istanbul and The 40 Rules of Love. Her latest novel is Three Daughters of Eve, which is an exploration of Islam and femininity. Her books have been translated into more than 40 languages. She's been long-listed for a number of very important literary prizes, amongst them the Orange Prize, the Man Asian Prize, the Bailey's Prize, and the Impact Dublin Award, as well as the Independent Foreign Fiction Prize and the Royal Society of Literature on Darche Prize. This morning, in her talk, she's going to touch on some of the most compelling issues of our time. Identity, religion, faith, freedom, and sexuality. The general, talk of, the general title of her talk is, Where are the women in today's Islamic world? And the talk is going to last for about 20, 25 minutes. And then what we hope will happen, and certainly I know what Elif hopes will happen, is that the discussion between us will become shared. There will be questions, there will be comments from you, the audience, and through that we will be able to work toward a dialogue between all of us. Can I also just make some housekeeping notices at this final point in what I have to say? First of all, for those of you who are using Twitter, the hashtag for debate for today's event is LSE Lit Fest. I would ask you, of course, to please put your phones on silent for this event, and the event is being recorded and will, we hope, eventually be issued as a podcast. After the talk, Elif will be, a book, will be signing her books upstairs, and of course you're very welcome to that event. 
So now, may I ask you to welcome to LSE and to this event, Elif Shafak. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's, it's, it's wonderful to be here, wonderful to be back. And I'm honestly really um, looking forward to your questions, your comments, your critical remarks. I deliberately want to keep my own talk very short so that we can open the floor for your voices and let's all together turn this into um, hopefully a productive dialogue. And we can talk about a variety of issues, but this will be our starting ground. There are maybe two main reasons why I'm very interested in this subject. One of them, the first one, is more cerebral, is more intellectual. Um, just to perhaps give you a, a little bit of background as to my own journey, I, what I've done in Turkey was, in Turkey, in America, in the UK, was always, always multidisciplinary. I love interdisciplinary work. I love learning from other disciplines. I was never happy when I was in one single department, in one single area. I, I never felt free like that. What I liked was interdisciplinary um, studies where people from different backgrounds could come together and share, our idea, share their ideas. So I graduated from international relations, and I was very miserable when I was doing international re relations to the point that I decided to, to drop out of college, and then the college dropped me. So <laughs> first I thought it was my decision. I'm, I'm leaving. You know, what is this? I'm just wasting my time. I can do more uh, important things with my time. I want to be a writer anyhow. Why am I wasting my time in international relations? That was my feeling as a, as a student. And then, of course, when I was kicked out of university, I panicked and I realized, wait a minute, I, I'm not the one making the decision anymore. And then there was an amnesty, and I came back to university, <laughs> acing in all my exams. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because of these zigzags, um, perhaps like many of you, when I enjoyed an area, I really put my effort, my mind into it. When I didn't enjoy it, I felt very disconnected. So the areas that I felt more um, at home were always interdisciplinary. Anyhow, I graduated from international relations. I managed that. And then I moved on to women's studies. And we were the first students of women's studies, gender and women's studies in Turkey uh, at Middle East Technical University. And I never forget the bias, the way we were treated, even um, professors, the faculty making fun saying why the need for what are you doing there, what are you guys studying there, gender and women's studies, the, the, the belittlement, how they would belittle, uh, and yet how we were proud of what we were doing, how we were curious, and we were so hungry to, to read everything we could get our hands on. And I studied with wonderful scholars in, in, at Mid Middle East Technical University, coming from history, political philosophy, sociology, amazing professors, uh, and we were constantly reading. So I always remember those years with a lot of fondness in my heart. Then I moved on to political science in PhD, but again with an emphasis on the Middle East. And then I went to America. In Boston, I was at a women's college. Uh, this was a fellowship for women, mostly women um, scholars, but also some women ri uh, writers from different parts of the world. 
And again, I felt very much at home in that interdisciplinary environment. Then I moved to University of Michigan, where I became a visiting scholar at Women's Studies. And then I moved to University of Arizona, where I became um, a, a, a tenure-track professor for both departments, both gender uh, and LGBT studies, and also Middle East, uh, they would call it Near Eastern studies. So I, I want you to know my, my, my background. And these are issues that I care about, I love to read about, think about. But I wouldn't be telling the truth if I don't also mention an emotional reason why I'm interested in these subjects. And that is because of my own upbringing. That is because I was raised by a single mother, um, by a divorcee, a very young divorcee, and I'm talking about late 1970s, early 1980s in Turkey. And at the time, when we came back with my mother from, from France, where I was born, my father stayed there. With my mom, we returned to Ankara. And we ended up in this very, very conservative, very patriarchal, uh, middle-class neighborhood in Ankara in the house of my grandmother. And this is the woman who raised me. Maybe some of you are familiar with this story, but at the time it was, it was a bit unusual for... Uh, my mom was only 20 years old. She had also dropped out of university, thinking that love was enough, all she needed. So by the time she came back to... Turkey, she had no diploma, no job, no career, definitely no money, and a toddler in her hands. Um, and, and the future looked very grim. And there were some very curious neighbors, there are always some curious neighbors, who wanted to find a immediately suitable husband for her because a young divorcee on her own is seen as a threat in a patriarchal community. And while these neighbors were trying to find a suitable husband, preferably someone older, um, because she's not a virgin anymore, and virginity is very much important in that, in that world. While they were doing that, my, it was my grandmother, my very traditional, my very Eastern, my very superstitious spiritual grandmother, who intervened and said, you know what, you, sh you don't have to get married again with, in a rush. You don't have to be rushed into another marriage. That's what she said to my mom. You have to go back to university. You should have a diploma. You should graduate. Um, you should have choices in life. If you want to get married, of course you can do it anytime. You're, you're so young. And I will take care of my granddaughter while you do that. And this is exactly what these two women did. My mom went back to college. She graduated, and she graduated with flying colors. Then she became a teacher of literature, and then she became a diplomat by the time I was 10 years old. Throughout that time, I was raised by this traditional grandmother. And the reason why I start with this story is because my mom and my grandmother, at first glance, were incredibly different people. Their personalities, the way they dressed up, their worldviews. My mother is very secularist, very Kemalist, very modernist, very urban, um, very westernized, very well-educated, and she's a career woman, if I may put it in those terms. My grandmother, a housewife, as I mentioned, more Eastern, um, less educated, definitely more irrational, and, these, and yet these two women supported each other. And there was this bond of sisterhood um, or solidarity between them that changed not only my mother's life, but also my life, and I believe the, the life of my children. It changed generations, that solidarity between these two women. And it breaks my heart that that kind of solidarity, that kind of sisterhood does not exist in Turkey today. 
And it is because of politics. It is because politics divides us so badly into categories of so-called this woman versus that woman that we forget the very fact that we have so much in common and the very fact that we live in a very patriarchal society. We have so much to fight against in a, in a country where there is an increasing, an alarming rate of domestic violence in a country where we have massive problems when it comes to incest, sexual molestation, harassment on the streets, things that we can't talk about very easily. We have so much in common to fight against, and yet I do not see women in my country, in my motherland, supporting each other. Because the ideological, the cultural, the political, cognitive distances between us are so big. Because we're so obsessed with what we wear on our head, because we're so obsessed with our own little communities, we are so obsessed with the idea that we have to be in our own little tribes. And my point is, if women are divided like this, the only thing that will benefit from it is patriarchy itself. And this is exactly what's happening in Turkey. I used to be um, t uh, an assistant at Middle East Technical University when there was a headscarf ban uh, across Turkey. And I was very critical of the headscarf ban for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm a feminist, and I, don't, I, I cannot digest the fact that women are being stopped at the entrance of the university while male students with similar worldviews, right, similar um, ways of interpreting life, can easily get into classrooms. And this is happening in a country where there's already uh, difficulties, lots of obstacles for women to enter into public education or the public space. I was aware that most of these girls were coming from more conservative backgrounds. It wasn't easy for them to make that move from the private space into the public space. And I wanted people to come to university. Let us read together. Let us discuss together. Let us create open spaces together. Um, so I was one of those liberals who were very critical of the headscarf ban. Now, what happened ever since then in Turkey, the headscarf ban was lifted, okay, but I would expect people who, would, who were discriminated against back then, for instance, um, students wearing headscarves, of course I'm generalizing, uh, and, and it's wrong to generalize, but I would expect people who experienced that kind of discrimination to be more empathetic towards people who are being discriminated against today for different reasons. Uh, and this might sound controversial, but I said this in, in interviews in Turkey. I would expect women who have been stopped at university doors because of headscarves to be more supportive of the LGBT movement in Turkey today and be more vocal when, when the gay uh, pride parade was stopped in Turkey in a, in a completely incomprehensible way or to be more sympathetic towards the others, not only sexual others, but cultural others, uh, or whoever feels as the other for any given reason. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, if we keep on wanting certain rights for only ourselves, or people who are like us, for only our own tribe, and not see that we should also want the same rights for everyone equally, then there's no way we can break these chains of discrimination. It will go on, on and on and on from one generation to the next. So my heart always longs for a kind of women's movement uh, and consciousness, awareness, that is welcoming everyone and trying to find shared values and trying to organize us around those shared values. 
because I am aware that none of the rights that we have can be taken for granted. And history does not always go forward, sometimes it goes backwards. Time sometimes draws circles, and countries can make the same mistakes again and again. One of the sad ironies about Turkey is that it, has, it learned nothing from the mistakes it made in the past. And today, if you want, we can talk about this openly. I'm very worried that we're sliding backwards in terms of our democracy, in terms of our freedom of speech. And when countries become more authoritarian, when countries become more nationalistic, yes, when countries become more religious publicly, I think women have much more to lose than men. So this is a critical moment, I believe, not only in Turkey but across the Middle East. As you travel, we don't talk about these things, but they matter you will see that streets belong to men, public squares belong to men, even cities belong to men after certain hours. We all know sexual molestation. We all sometimes carry safety pins in our bags, but we don't talk about these issues publicly. But we must. We have to stop being embarrassed about things that we have um, no role in, and we have to increase our voices because I think so much is at stake. Um, the Middle East is going through enormous turbulence, but at the same time, perhaps this is the right time for more and more women coming from Muslim geography um, to, to talk to each other and perhaps to, to inquire, is it possible to be sisters? And this is what I wanted to explore. What, this was one of the subjects that I wanted to explore in my, in my recent novel, Three Daughters of Eve. Um, some of you might have already read it in Turkish. It came out in Turkey first, even though it was written in English first. And we can talk about language too. Um, in, in, in the UK, it came out in, in February. And as you might know, there are three girls in the story, three young women, university students. One of them is Shirin. She's a British-Iranian, and she's a child of exiles, uh, a family that had to leave Iran because because of the, the oppression of religion, yeah? because of the oppression of fundamentalism. And therefore, she herself has experienced this very negative side of religion and how it can turn easily into dogma and into an instrument of oppression. And she's very critical of that. She's critical of all religions, but in particular, she's very critical of Islam because of its mistreatment of women. The second girl in the story is Mona, who wears a headscarf, who is a sincere practicing uh, believer, and she complains a lot about Islamophobia because she's subjected to Islamophobia. And the third girl in the story, um, so we have yeah, British-Iranian, Egyptian-American, and the third girl is the Turkish girl who has lots of questions about everything and anything, and her name is Piri. Maybe I deliberately wanted to make the the third girl, um, the Turkish girl, because we in Turkey, I think, we're quite confused about so many things, including identity matters. And maybe it's not a coincidence, given how Turkey is situated geographically, culturally. But together, these three girls are the sinner, the believer, and the confused. This is what they jokingly call themselves. And the story very much focuses on the journey of the confused. But again, my, my point was, Okay, they're so different. 
Can they talk to each other? Can they find a common ground? Can they be sisters? I am aware that I'm a feminist, but I'm aware that the word feminism, unfortunately, does not travel very wide, east and west, because it runs into lots of cultural barriers. But the word sisterhood is very light, and uh, light in a, in a very positive sense. It can travel all across the world, east, west, north, south. So that was the, the, the concept that I, that I wanted to probe. Should you like, I'm happy to, to stop here and continue both with our, uh, Professor Mary's questions and then also with your questions and, and, and comments. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jennifer. I'm actually going to use um, the chair's privilege to ask Jennifer an immediate question, and after that, I'm going to open it to the floor. When you are asking a question, there are roving mics, so don't think that you have to shout. Somebody will bring you a microphone, and you can speak into that in a very normal way. <laughs> okay, what I wanted to ask you about is this issue of religion, because one of the things that has come out of my reading of your latest novel is taking forward the idea of the problem of assuming that societies are secular or non-secular, which has always seemed to me to be something which is highly problematic. I don't myself think that there is actually anything which is exactly a secular society. And you put forward this really interesting idea about belief as hope, and I just wondered if you would be able to say something a bit more about that. Thank you so much. I think I, um, what I don't like is certainty. And um, when, when people speak with certainty, it's, it, it kind of troubles me. I like it when people are confused, you know. When I, I think there's a, there's a certain modesty in, in confusion. There's a certain modesty in, the, in saying, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I'm still thinking. I'm still searching. I'm still learning. And very few of us can say that anymore. We have a little bit of an idea about everything, but information is not the same thing as knowledge, and certainly knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. I think we have very little wisdom in today's world and too much information. That imbalance troubles me. So very bluntly or, or, or roughly speaking, when I look at the very religious people, they have so much certainty that they want to get rid of doubt. When I listen to... Um, atheist scientists who are very sure of where they stand, they have so much um, skepticism that they want to get rid of the faith. And I don't feel close to any side. I'm not a religious person at all, uh, and I'm not a believer. But I'm someone who happens to be interested in faith, and I'm someone who, who takes it seriously, the questions. I'm someone who also happens to be interested in doubt, and I think they should go hand in hand. Why are we constantly trying to separate them? You know? If they don't exist together, how can we expand our hearts? How can we expand our minds? And I believe there are secular acts of faith in our lives. When you move to a different country, um, I'm sure many of you have experienced this, you don't know why you're doing this. It's just this gut feeling, this very irrational instinct that you follow. You can't rationalize it. And it is a secular act of faith that makes you move from one place to another without any rational base. It is an act of faith when you start writing a novel, 
You don't know whether that novel will ever succeed. You don't know where that story is taking you. It's a secular act of faith. When you fall in love with someone, you don't know if that person is going to bring happiness into your life, and yet you follow your intuition. It's a secular act of faith. In our lives, there are acts of faith that have nothing to do with religion. And yet faith in itself, if it is devoid of dogma, uh, sorry, doubt, is a very dangerous thing because it makes us blind. It, it, it t- strips us of the ability to think critically. In other words, faith without doubt will turn into dogma, and I think dogmas are very, very dangerous. So I want them both together, faith and doubt. It is an eternal dance, and we are the students of life. For me, questions are far more important than answers. So when I run into people who have found the answers, I always feel a little bit uncomfortable. Next to people like agnostics or maybe heterodox mystics who are still searching and who have that kind of modesty, I think I feel much more at home there. Um, because I know that their journey is an ongoing journey. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, I'm not going to abuse any more of my privilege here this morning, so can I ask the audience for your questions and indeed your comments? And um, Elif has said that she very much welcomes questions, but that doesn't mean to say that this has, that disallows a space for comments either. So I hope you'll see that both those possibilities. Okay. Thank you very much for this opportunity. My name is Zal Karim. I work in area of sociology. And uh, I won't name the context, but did some ethnographic research in southern South Asian part, uh-huh. especially in rural mountainous context. And, and uh, what you were talking about, challenges faced by women, um, would you like to suggest some off-the-cuff, some elements of social intervention? Mm-hmm. If we were to change, because the context that I have researched, there are issues around patriarchy, economy, um, uh, gender uh, roles, literacy. Uh, women are highly educated, but they live within the dominant patriarchal structure. Mm-hmm. So they find mismatch in, uh, you know, suitable finding suitable partners, sometimes end up committing suicides. Yeah, of course. So as a, as a sociologist, I'm more interested in, you know, social interventions. Mm-hmm. So how to use the existing discourse and sometimes transcend and find a channel where uh, some partnership with patriarchy and feminism may happen. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Okay. I, I, Thank you. I, I understand. Um, for me, it's, it's essential to, to bring people out of their ghettos. I think we are very much divided into cultural ghettos. And this is even more the case in countries where there's very little democracy, very little transparency, where politics is aggressive, divisive, masculinists, such as in Turkey. There's more... The lack of trust between people coming from different backgrounds is enormous. But that lack of trust, that lack of communication among women is affecting all of us negatively, in my opinion. And it directly serves into the hands of patriarchy. Um, These are very sexist, very homophobic, very male-dominated societies we're talking about. So my first endeavor is always try to 
bring together women from different backgrounds. We must perhaps also bear in mind that patriarchal societies, paradoxically, are quite matriarchal in the private space. We always respect elderly women. We respect the mother of the mother, sometimes even more so the mother of the father. Grandmothers are highly revered. Um, but the interesting or the sad irony is the matriarchs oftentimes do not use that power that they get as they become older to support the younger women joining the family, like the daughters-in-law. Just the opposite, I have seen so many cases in which because the matriarchs, when they were young, they suffered so badly, many women think, okay, now it's her turn to suffer. And we can never break this chain. There is something wrong about um, not respecting women until they get old. When do we respect women? Only when women are defeminized, desexualized in the public eye. Then they are revered as something else, as a different category. We need to question that as well. But more importantly, how can we make the matriarchs more supportive of the younger generations? How can we make women from different backgrounds more supportive of each other? And as I said, not only women, but starting with women, uh, what I long for is a more pluralistic way of reading uh, life. This is what we've lost in Turkey, the culture of coexistence. We do not, there isn't, and, and especially because of the language that's being used in politics, it's a very, very sharply divided language that politicians use in Turkey, and they're doing it deliberately because pitting half of the society against the other half has always served to their interests. They know that. Because you create others in the society constantly, tension, um, but what we're losing in the meantime is a culture of coexistence, and this is very unhealthy for any society. So it is a question that I take very seriously, but I believe the first um, step forward is to create more interaction between generations, you know, older and younger, and also women from different cultural class and, and political backgrounds. This is our biggest challenge. Thank you. Thank you. Um, there's a question just there in the centre. Could I ask? Um, can you see? Thank you. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us today, Leif. Um, my name is Janetta. I'm an MSc, sorry, MSc student here in urbanisation and development. Um, so my question is kind of in two parts. So first, um, you say that there is this solidarity or sisterhood between women that is becoming impossible now in Turkey. Um, and so when do you believe that the shift began occurring? And then the second um, part is that can we even call this now a sisterhood um, if we continue to support, or we continue not to support each other across the generations, even yeah. within one family? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. I think as, a, as an idea and as an ideal, we have to keep sisterhood alive and see what we are losing by not focusing on that concept. One of, the, one of the most beautiful things I learned from African-American women's movement when I was in America was, was precisely the importance of sisterhood. Because these were women, especially in 1960s, 70s, because they felt oppression from many angles, not only because they were women, but because of race issues, sometimes class issues, they were aware of the, of the need for pluralism 
You know, they were aware of the need for a pluralistic response. It is not a coincidence that when you read African-American women speakers, women writers, women poets like Audre Lorde, in all of them there's a constant emphasis on multiplicity. Like Audre Lorde, I mean, she, she, it was her manifesto. She would say, I'm a poet, I'm black, uh, I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I'm a lesbian, I'm this, I'm that. I'm many more things that you might not notice when you look at me. I'm all of them together. Now, how many of us say that anymore? We have been reduced to an identity politics, and we should not fall into that trap. Why do we have to be just one singular little thing when we are so vast in our hearts and in our minds? Human beings are, are fluid. We are made of water. Why are we trying to trap water? Right? So all extremist ideologies, including Islamic fundamentalism and including far-right ideologies across Europe, they have one thing in common. They hate multiplicity. They can't deal with multiplicity. So they prefer simplicity. They say, are you a Muslim? Just be a Muslim and nothing else, according to their definition of Islam. They say, are you Dutch? Then be a proud Dutch, nothing else. Why can't you be a Muslim and secular and Dutch and this and that and many more things that they might not see at first glance? Yeah? So I think we have to emphasize that multiplicity. Only when we can be multiple uh, inside, we can be better sisters to each other. Otherwise, if I stick to only one single definition of myself, how am I going to find common ground with someone else who doesn't come from my tribe? Okay. Um, perhaps we might take a person up there, then I'll come back to you over there. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, sure, please. <laughs> um, I think it's a bit further back, actually. Just up, that's it, just there, and along the road. Thank you very much. Hi. Um, thank you so much. Um, my question is, so you've made this translation sort of effort of um, not talking about feminism, but talking about sisterhood, a sort of cultural translation, yeah? And I was wondering um, what other cultural translation tricks do you use when you talk about feminism in Turkey? Because um, I get the impression that... Um, a lot of the times when you talk about feminism anywhere else than the West, this is seen as Western cultural colonialism as well. So, um, yeah, I'm just wondering what tricks you think work best and have worked best in your experience. Thank you so much. Um, yes, the, the biases that I mentioned earlier when I was doing women's studies in Turkey, I've heard so many of them. Of course, those biases exist very much so <clears throat> against the word feminism. People tend to think that feminism is just one single thing, whereas it's, again, multiple. There are all kinds of schools of feminisms, and they have criticized each other. But what is much more important for me is that to, to the knowledge that the rights that we enjoy today were not given to us in one day or overnight. It was the accumulation of struggles, generations of men and women who put their hearts into those struggles. So to be a feminist or post-feminist, to me, it also means recognizing the work of earlier generations, the works of our mothers and grandmothers, not to forget. As a Turkish writer, I am aware of the, of the struggles that goes all the way back to the Ottoman Empire. So many women of all kinds of backgrounds at the time, under much more difficult circumstances, they worked so hard. 
But I also understand that the word feminism, yes, it doesn't have echoes, far-reaching echoes, because of cultural barriers. So I use it for myself. I don't expect everyone to, to describe themselves as feminists. That's fine. But sisterhood, yes, it is a much more universal concept. And as a writer, I am interested in words. I am interested in those words that can and cannot travel. I am interested in those words that can't be directly translated from one language to another. It makes me think, why is that? You know, some of my novels, the titles in, in Turkish are very different than the titles in English because those titles could not travel into other languages. Or when they traveled, they acquired different meanings. So I had to play with the titles. Um, what I'm trying to say is I, I pay attention to these nuances, and I think, I really believe sisterhood is, is a lighter, much more universal concept. We should care about um, language, we should care about nuances, but also we should care about the gaps, because those cultural gaps, those cognitive gaps are affecting all of us. After decades of accelerated globalization, whether we like globalization or not, all of us, we are interconnected. In every respect, we are interconnected. So what's happening in one part of the world affects our lives, our destinies, our happiness here. Um, and building imaginary walls or real walls is not going to help anything. It is an illusion. That's, that's what populists are telling us. That's what nationalists are telling us. They say, if we're surrounded by sameness, we will be safer. That is an illusion. Yeah, in a, in, a, in, a, in a deeply interconnected world, the only thing that will make us safer in the long run is through international solidarity, through sisterhoods um, and, and, and cooperations and dialogues that go beyond, beyond borders. So therefore, I think we need to pay attention to how language travels or sometimes cannot, cannot travel. I don't see them as tricks, but I see it as, um, as a necessary exercise in empathy. Thank you. I know there was a question just there. That gentleman in the, in the green sweater. Yes, please. Thank you. Great to see you again, Olive. Thank you. Well, since uh, my coloured question on Monday, day by day, I've been feeling angrier and angrier. Yeah. For the reason, because I realised through my adulthood, I've been reading fake news most of the time. <laughs> the BBC, New York Times, CNN and so on. So my, my real question to you is, where are the women in today's post-truth, fake news, Islamic world. Yes, thank you. Um, but let us not make the mistake. I mean, let's, let's be critical of the media. Let's be critical of, for instance, experts, right? I, I, you might disagree with me, but I want to share with you one concern that I have, and maybe it's going to be a long answer in that regard. Yes, when I look at experts, for instance, did they see the Arab Spring coming? They did not. Did they see financial crisis coming? No. How many experts predicted Brexit would happen? How many experts, foreign experts, international experts, predicted Trump would be the next president? So um, people have lost their trust in experts. But there's a very, very dangerous downside. And I am afraid that populist demagogues are exploiting this. They are telling us, and they are telling this openly, they are saying, you know what, you don't need intellectuals, you don't need experts, just trust your gut feeling. You are the real people, uncorrupt, and then there's the corrupt elite, then there's the corrupt media. This duality is a fake duality. The people who are telling us such things are just as part of the establishment 
as the establishment they pretend to criticize. We have to understand. Nobody is going to convince me that Marine Le Pen is not part of the political establishment in France. <laughs> yeah? So I, I think we have to, this, this is my number one concern. I don't want to think in dualistic terms. Dualities always breed their opposite. And maybe this is one of the beautiful Sufi teachings that are, that are ancient, right? The more dualistic you approach, the more uh, you will breed the opposite. We have to find a new language, a much more nuanced language, and we have to bring complexity into the, into the discussion. The second thing maybe I learned the hard way, again coming from Turkey, is that when you lose media, you lose democracy, democracy very fast. And so I was, as a, as a writer, I was so critical of journalists because they write all kinds of things about us. They say all kinds of horrible things, and you get angry at them. But it is a horrible thing not to have journalism as a profession in a society. It's a horrible thing when a society loses its media diversity and media independence. There can be no pluralistic democracy and no proper dialogue if there isn't uh, CNN and BBC and many other mainstream and, and alternative media outlets, they, they should all exist. What matters is that, again, that pluralism of voices. So I really have a lot of respect for the profession of journalism, especially after seeing what they have gone through in Turkey. Yeah. Um, what do we do in this, in this so-called post-truth world? I think we need to be careful about not relying too much on one single source of information. If all the books that I read are just echoes of each other, if all the people that I become friends with are just equally like me, yeah? if I'm only hearing voices that are simple replicas of my own voice, there's something wrong with my approach. That is why so many educated, liberal, well-intentioned people didn't see anything coming. They didn't see Brexit coming, they didn't see Trump coming, because very few of them just go beyond their own echo chambers. But this is a criticism that is, I think, relevant, pertinent for all of us. Also on social media, it's so tricky. We tend to stay in our own islands, and we don't realize how much time we spend in those islands. I think the best way, for women especially, is to become friends from women who dress up differently, who come from different backgrounds, who think differently. Let us, let us talk. Let us hear each other's stories. But not only for women, for all of us, I think this is going to be the biggest, the biggest challenge. If we approach this problem in dualistic terms, populists are much better at exploiting dualities um, than non-populist. History is full of examples of that. So a dualistic way of thinking is not going to get us anywhere. I'm just, I'm just worried about that. Sorry, I gave a very long answer, but uh, I think in the post-truth world, so-called, it is important to appreciate the importance of knowledge, the importance of wisdom, and not to confuse uh, the little informations that we get from, from our own echo chambers with the, with the entire reality. Okay. Okay, thank you. Um, there's a question right down the front here, perhaps first, and then we'll come back to you in just a moment. Um, thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Mona. I'm a PhD student. Um, thank you so much for this talk, because I think nowadays we have many um, extreme right-wing people and also extreme left-wing people. So, yeah. you know... Um, Hearing your talk, it's such, you know, refreshing and, you know, uplifting. Um, my question is, um, 
I'm really concerned about political correctness because sometimes when I want to criticize um, some religion, people accused me for being um, Islamophobic, for example, or if I want to just mention that um, certain struggle, it's not about racism, they accused me for, of being racist. So I'm wondering how can we draw the line between yeah. political correctness and freedom of speech? And okay. by the way, I'm really with, you know, uh, freedom of speech. So mm -hmm. how can we draw the line? <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a tough, tough question and, and one that we should be asking ourselves now more than ever before. One of the m most... Um, Beautiful images that I saw last week on social media was taken in New York. Um, two men walking side by side in, in one of the rallies. And one of them was a Muslim. He was wearing a sign that said, Muslims against anti-Semitism. And he, next to him was another young student. Uh, he was Jewish, Jewish-American. And he wore a sign saying, Jews against Islamophobia. And the picture made me stop and think. It's... it's um, it's very important when we can get out of our tr tribes and see what is it that the other tribe, you know, well, you understand that I'm using the word tribe in a more symbolic way, is sensitive about. Why are they hurt? Try to see the story from, from their angle. Very few people um, do that, m make that intellectual and spiritual exercise. But it's one that we should be doing more often, I believe. It's very easy for Muslims to be, to complain about Islamophobia. It's easy, relatively, uh, for Jews to complain about anti-Semitism. Can we do the opposite? Can we do the cross, the crisscross, you know? In, in every area in life. This is just, just a tiny little example. Uh, I am aware that these are contentious issues, especially on university campuses, because, again, in England, we have heard so many um, news about creating safe spaces where controversial speakers are not invited. Where do I draw the line? I draw the line um, when it comes to violence. If, if a person is inciting direct violence, especially against a minority, especially against individuals, I am I, I'm very aware of hate speech and, and the dangers of hate speech. But other than that, I think we have to learn not to be offended. We have to, we have to be okay with hearing different voices, but also ready to challenge those voices. The best answer to a book is by writing another book. You know, if you, if you don't like one cartoon, you draw another cartoon. If you don't like one way of talking, you talk in a different way. You, you, you develop your own style. But by suppressing voices, vetoing people, suppressing freedom of speech, we won't get anywhere. We will only be creating more and more cultural ghettos. So I am, I am worried about that. And especially on academic uh, ground, terrain, it is important to, to allow ourselves to hear multiple, multiple voices. These are not easy exercises, I'm aware of that, um, but one, one we, could, we could do together, especially in a city like London that is already multicultural, that is already cosmopolitan. I mean, I'm looking at all the people here, everybody's from a different background, and of course we will be seeing things differently, but the most important thing is to talk. My only exception, as I said, is hate speech that targets vulnerable people. 
To me, this is important because I have seen this happen in Turkey. Uh, we, we, all of a sudden, we became very, very critical of political correctness, and I don't like political correctness in its extreme form. But let us not abandon or let us not forget how political correctness began historically. There was a reason. It didn't start all of a sudden. Um, so I respect how it began and why it began. What I don't like is when it's taken to an extreme and when it becomes an absolute dogma. You see what I mean? Again, I want to have a much more nuanced approach. Just to give you one example, in the Turkish uh, official dictionary, um, if, you, if you look at the definition of dirty, the second description or the third description of dirty, I think the second, is a woman who is menstruating. Now, I want that definition to be taken out. But you might say, but you're doing political correctness. But I will say that I don't want younger generations of women and girls to grow up thinking they're dirty. Yeah? Just because they are who they are. This is their body. This is their nature. Why am I thinking I'm dirty? Because the dictionary... So there are moments when political correctness still matters, but we should na- not take it to, a, to an extreme... T- uh, to, the, to an extreme, to the extent that we stop talking to each other. I think we need a much more nuanced approach on this issue as well. Thank you. Now there is somebody, could you just down here and then come back to you? Thank you very much. So thank you for today. I've got to thank my husband for introducing me to your work. It's been beautiful. Um, but um, the question I have is when to disrupt and when to conform as a woman. Um, And it's not a problem that I face in Britain, um, but when you step into a consulate or an embassy, you you, you enter a microchasm of a country. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to name the country because it's not about the country, it's about the issue. And I wonder what what you would actually do in this situation um, where I was applying for dual nationality duly filled out a form um, on a computer screen with a gentleman. Um, He whizzed through the screen, um, and then I got a printout of my form. Um, And on it, under a profession, there was a default setting, which I've never heard before, called house lady. Um, So quite rather sweet. Um, And then I, I was to sign the form to say that everything on this form was correct, along with everything else. So I took it back and I said, well... Um, I'm not a house lady, and I told him what my profession was. Um, he couldn't find this on, on, on the drop-down menu, so I helped him find this. Um, but I, I, I felt enormous pressure, even though I was so... Um, I felt like I was an independent, strong woman in that consulate because I was holding up everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, I, and I came away afterwards thinking, should I have bothered... But also, what should I do next? Because that computer system, the structure didn't allow for that. It was set up. That was the default. And I wondered, you know, because my next step is to write above. Is that something that we should be doing? Or do you just think, oh, yeah. just conform? That, that's my question. No, I, I, I have respect for um, the, the pockets of resistance that we can express in our, in our daily lives. And to be honest, I don't think there's an easy, easy answer because there are moments when we conform, then there are moments when we follow our conscience and raise our voices. 
And maybe we should raise our voices now ever more than ever before because we realize so much is changing, so much is at stake, even in seemingly more established egalitarian seemingly societies. Um, a lot is at stake. So I, I, I don't uh, underestimate the importance of um, voicing. You know, If more than one person does that, if they say, what is this house lady? Um, then, then they will start taking it more seriously. In Turkey, as you know, for a long time, we don't do it anymore, but we, 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 use, we have to use these ID cards. If you're a woman, you have to have a pink ID card. If you're a man, you have to have a blue ID card. And sometimes I, 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 I criticize myself. Why didn't I oppose? In my mind, I did. Um, when I spoke, I did, but I never did it publicly. So I think it was important to challenge these weird, weird stereotypes, dualities. Why can't we all be just, just, just human? And also, of course, the way they describe, like you have to write your religion and everything. No, if you don't have an option. You're not given options because the state wants to categorize you, wants to pigeonhole you. So I think it's important to, to, to share uh, our criticism. I have a lot of respect, really, for, for peaceful resistance in, in our daily lives. Oh, well, that's a forest of hands. I wonder if it... <laughs> just, um, I, there are obviously so many people who want to take part in this discussion. I wonder, would, it, would you be happy to take maybe three questions at once? Would okay. That, would that uh, be all right? Maybe so I should can... speak... Uh, I'm, I'm giving very long answers. Maybe I should keep them shorter. Right, yes, okay. Of course. I'm, of course, I'm trying yeah. not to make this a, a matter of who puts their hand up first or highest or whatever else. Uh, <laughs> but, okay... Person over there, if you'd like to ask, and then somebody, those two people sitting more or less behind each other at the back, okay? The lady or the... The, the two gentlemen oh, behind the two there. Gentlemen. Okay. Could you just ask your question, and um, then we'll ask... Yeah, Anna so three two, questions. Three questions, okay. okay? And if, obviously, if you could keep them um, as brief as possible, please. Um, hi, Alif. Um, just a brief background. I came from a country that um, uses Islam as... I'm here. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. No worries. So I came from a country that uses Islam as a tool um, to um, oppress others in a way that, for example, sharing a law, um, which I personally believe is oppressive to certain non-Muslim women in my country um, who happens to marry a Muslim man. And being being part of the religion and the majority of the population, how can I use my voice um, to counter this oppression? And um, what can I do next? Okay, thank you. Could you perhaps pass the microphone? Thank you very much. Thank you, Elif, uh, for coming here. I'm, my name is Abdan, I'm also from Turkey. Um, and I really appreciate what you said about like this continuity of taking revenge from the other and um, you know, so asking for more um, discrimination. Um, but my question is that you definitely said that we are being punished, but, for example, you can legally and constitutionally still say that you are gay in public. You can still say that you are not a believer. Um, but I think you are not going to be pu um, punished maybe legally, but you will definitely be punished by the public. The people will actually discriminate you more than um, the government will. Um, so how do we break that chain? Because I think that is the more dangerous one. Um, is it too late? To, is it too late in Turkey? You think because just people cannot even talk about these things anymore. Thank you so much. The final okay. one is over there. Yes. Thank you. Uh, here, do you hear me? 
Okay. Um, thank you very much. It's an absolutely wonderful dream that I'm living here to see you now. Um, ever since I, I discovered your book, um, you became my faraway educator, and uh, it's an absolute honor to. And I'm extremely emotional now to, to hear you. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I was one uh, one month ago. I was at Cambridge. Um, I'm a UCL student. I was at Cambridge one month ago, um, <clears throat> listening to Professor Nassim Taleb. Um, and uh, he said at one point something that has, has been striking for me. Um, while analyzing rigorously what happens in Syria, he said, what, exactly is, what element is exactly worse from the Assad regime uh, more than what happens with the moderate rebels? Uh, we have witnessed what happened with, with, uh, with women mm -hmm. since the war began. Mm -hmm. um, I am part of, um, I'm original finalist for the Halt Prize Foundation for the uh, mm -hmm. prize, and we work on, the, on a solution for the refugee crisis. Um, my question to you is, how exactly do you see this huge emotional damage that happened, yeah. uh, not just to women, but to everyone, basically, Absolutely. since the, the beginning of the war? Absolutely. Thank, Thank you, you so very much. much. Thank you. I, I really appreciate your questions. And also, I find your questions very brave. Um, you know, talking about Sharia and, and, and you've seen how it can discriminate against uh, especially people who are not in the mainstream. For me, it's, it's very important to, to, to be aware of the dangers of majoritarianism. Majoritarianism is not the same thing as, as democracy, right? And I think this is one of the biggest mistakes that the ruling elite in Turkey are making. They think if you have the ballot box, if you have elections, if you get the votes, it's a democracy. Just the ballot box in itself doesn't make it a democracy. It makes the majoritarianism. If you don't have anything else, such as rule of law, separation of powers, protection of minorities, women's rights, LGBT rights, free media, academic freedoms, etc., together with all these things, we talk about a democracy. So my emphasis is always on pluralistic democracy and also secularism. As a woman, I find secularism very, very precious secularism in the public space, and we can talk about this. Um, because I know what the impact of, of that in, in people's daily lives, everyone, of course, is entitled to their own religious beliefs, but those religious beliefs should not guide the state. The state is, is, is different. When the state is too robust and it dominates its form of life, its rhetoric, there's a huge inequality there of power. Um, and I think maybe it goes hand in hand. We need to focus on civil society because we come from countries where the state is not very tolerant, where the state is too robust and clumsy in many ways with all its bureaucracy and whole apparatuses. But the people, the people are curious, the people are connected. These are fast-moving societies despite all their deficiencies, very future-oriented, liquid societies with a large population of young people. And there is a big, big potential there. So we have to focus on civil society. And what you're saying is so true. I mean, yes, maybe there aren't laws against LGBT community, but my God, the homophobia that we run into again and again, even among so-called seemingly liberal societies, the jokes the biases. There have been very interesting polls conducted in Turkey, and number one issue when they ask 
people. If you don't, would you like to be neighbors with these kind of people? The number one, they, they name is no. I don't want any homosexuals, transsexuals in my in my neighborhood. If you ask them, how many homosexuals, transsexuals have you met in your life? Probably it's nil, but they have an idea about the whole community. We have to break down those those stereotypes, those cliches, and the only way we can do it is through human interaction, through human stories. I think it's vital that we share our stories. And the same with, with the stories of re- refugees. I am aware that given the, this tsunami of, um, it's, it's a huge calamity that we are observing. It's the, it's the worst humanitarian crisis since the Second World War. And it cannot be outsourced to Turkey, Jordan, and Lebanon. What the EU, what the Brussels elite did was also ethically wrong, but it's also unsustainable. And everybody in the Middle East, including the King of Jordan in different interviews, they're saying, you know what, the model is not sustainable. How long can you go on like this, trying to outsource? It's an international problem, and we can only solve it together as an international community. That's the way we should, we should have approached it in the first place. But there are humongous atrocities that have been committed throughout this, not only in Syria, in Iraq as well. We need to talk about the Yazidis, the Yazidi genocide. We have to put its name, um, but also mention how much pain there is in, 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 uh, in everywhere, you know, along the spectrum, the social, ethical, religious spectrum. So many people suffered, and I'm, I'm very worried because the damage... We, we, we're not there yet. We're not talking about these issues yet. Just to give you one example, uh, when we talk about refugees in Turkey, as you know, there are three million refugees now in Turkey. We don't talk about the increase, the alarming increase in child brides. So many Turkish and Kurdish women's organizations along the southeast border have issued statements and reports saying, you're not aware, but this is happening here. Many people are uh, marrying, Turkish men marrying Um, Syrian women as their second and third wives, even though polygamy is illegal, this is happening in my motherland. And also the the marriage age is dropping constantly because many refugee families think it's safer for their child, for their daughter, to have a husband to take care of her. So the whole thing, um, the cost of it, especially for women, for children, for girls, is enormous. and And we have to mend it together. Uh, if we think that we can outsource the problem to another country and keep it distant from us, I think we will be badly, badly mistaken. Um, so uh, for me, it's very important to emphasize, of course, I don't have personal solutions, but in my own way, I think it's very important to, to share the stories because when we dehumanize the other, we become numb. And after a threshold, the human psychology is very interesting. It doesn't matter anymore whether 5,000 people died or 500,000 people died. It doesn't register anymore. The only way it will register is when we know these people's names, stories, when we understand that they're human beings like myself, not just statistics, not just categories. So again, we have to break into that numbness. To me, numbness is just as dangerous as hatred itself. Thank you. Right. Um, Another exercise in trying to be fair to all these hands. Um, I'll take one person from over there, please. Um, There's a gentleman there, and then perhaps you, and then... um, Now then. (laughs) (laughs) 
Could we take the person in the darker clothes towards the back? <laughs> right. Um, there's a person there, there, there. Okay. Thank you. Hi, Liz. Have you all um, got the mic? Is the yes. mic on the way? The question I had was, uh, you talked about tribes, and you know we have tribes of women and we have tribes of men. And I was wondering where the spaces are for men and women to be able to talk about gender in a, in a space that is um, safe. So I work in the, in the world of um, systemic psychotherapy, um, family and couple therapy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that is the only space where I'm, I'm the rare species. I'm in a room, mainly women, but we feel very comfortable knowing that there's a difference in the room, but we can talk about gender, we can talk about power, we can talk about privilege, we can talk about all sorts of other issues. But I don't find many of those spaces mm-hmm. uh, where we can have those open discussions. And the second point I just wanted to make about where are the women in today's Islamic world, I'm connected to a Sufi tradition in West Africa called the Tijanis. Mm -hmm. And I've lived in Senegal. And there, the women are very prominent in public space, in private space, um, in terms of leadership, in terms of advice and guidance. One of the first women I met in Dakar, um, she really helped me a lot in my journey. And it's only in my second visit I found out that she's a professor in German. Uh, She used to be an ex-minister, and she's also a writer. So that there are women out there, it's just that, you know, I've travelled in Saudi and uh, Iran and other countries. Uh, I haven't seen so much of that there, but in West Africa, there are certainly very prominent women in, in the Sufi spaces. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank, thank you. you. And also, I just wanted to mention Bhopal as well. My, my mum was born in Bhopal, and there were four successive generations of women that ruled Bhopal. And you'll find in Bhopal, the culture of women is very different to the rest of India. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the, 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 the leadership that was there in Bhopal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the next question was the next qu- the other the, there was somebody in the centre block I think yes it was down here please hello Ella thank you for today um, my name is Esin I'm, I'm Turkish British uh, I'm a teacher of philosophy religious education and citizenship. And we've been talking about voices today, and I think education is also a very important platform um, for um, voices to be heard. Um, Currently, in the UK, we have quite an open discourse to talk about things like gender equality, Mm -hmm. um, respect for other religion, but... In Turkey, unfortunately, because education is dictated currently through a political um, discourse, um, I think it's really hard for the younger generations to understand, mm-hmm. you know, where, what's going on and how we can break this chain mm-hmm. and what we can do. And I think things like your books are going to be really valuable for young people to be able to get hold of these stories and to be able to look towards, you know, breaking this chain because, unfortunately, that you know, that kind of discussion in the education system isn't being provided and those opportunities are not being provided. I think. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and there's one other person at the back there, please. Um, hi, Aleph. Um, it's, it's an honour to meet you. I've read your book, Fortunes of Love, and... Um, my favourite character was Kimia. Um, Could you people, hold the microphone? People, people really say close. that um, okay. that uh, feminism isn't needed in the West anymore because women are already liberated and everything. But um, uh, like, as as somebody who uh, has a background from Iraq, I would like disagree because as a minority who grew up in the West. I um, have dis- I have been discriminated against as a woman. Uh, so, would you 
uh, give your opinion on uh, what the feminism is needed in the West? Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Um, of, of course, maybe if I can turn it upside down, the, the order, if you, if you don't mind. Of course, feminism is needed everywhere um, because, because I think gender discrimination happens everywhere, but in different degrees, in different forms. But by no means, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's an illusion to claim that the women, all women in the Western world are just um, very c completely emancipated and, and liberated, and it's only Muslim women or in the Middle East or, or in certain areas of the regions of the world that are being discriminated against. That's, that's not true. I think patriarchy itself is universal. Um, but we also have to understand that it, it takes different shapes. It happens in different degrees. In some parts of the world, today it's much more concentrated, much deeper, and the struggle, therefore, has to be, uh, is, is, is more difficult to struggle against it. But feminism is needed everywhere, or sisterhood is needed everywhere. When you look at the statistics of domestic violence and rape, it is very alarming to see that even in very advanced societies, there's a very sad rate of gender violence. Yeah? And also, as we mentioned, societies can go backwards. Um, perhaps many women in America are now understanding that, especially with some of the statements that Trump administration has been making, they are understanding that even the rights that they take for granted can, can disappear. Likewise, the LGBT community also in, in communities in, in, in America also have the same, same anxieties, just like many other minority communities, including Muslim American communities have. So it doesn't mean that societies always go forward. Even advanced societies can go backward. We always need that awareness. We always need that um, solidarity and sisterhood. And I think in that regard, just like patriarchy is universal, women's movements and sisterhood need to be universal as well. With regards to education, I, I, I totally agree. And it's a big, it's, it's a very sad comparison when in terms of education, just like with our democracy, we have been sliding backwards so, so badly. My generation in Turkey, and I went to schools in Turkey, primary schools, I went through that national education. We grew up thinking that Turkey was surrounded by sea on three sides and by enemies on four sides. I never forget, you know, what that does to your psyche. Uh, I remember the way we would learn to count one, two, three, the Russians are horrible, four, four five, six, the Germans are evil, you know, seven, eight, nine, the Bulgarians are so bad. There wasn't a single neighbor we spoke about positively. And, and just when we th I thought we were breaking that uh, paranoia of being surrounded by enemies, again, the same nationalistic, tribalistic, isolationist rhetoric is cropping up. That is, that is sad to see. What is much more uh, equally alarming for me is to see that there's no room for individuality in the Turkish education system. It's not a kind of uh, education that brings out your individual talents. I go to schools a lot in Turkey to give talks. And because I've been writing recently children's books, I had the chance, uh, and I consider it a privilege, to go to primary schools and, and middle schools as well. So seeing different generations. And it's amazing when you talk to Turkish kids of all backgrounds who are like 8, 9, 10 years old, when you ask them questions about whether they would like to be artists or poets, so many hands go up and they are full of chutzpah, they are full of ideas. My God, the energy, girls and boys together. Then I go to high schools, 
These are students who have hit puberty. They have gone through teenage years, and then the energy is completely different. Something has happened to them. Now girls are not talking anymore. Now girls are very conscious of their bodies, and it's always the male students who are putting up their hands, and the girls are timid, and nobody wants to be a writer anymore, and nobody wants to be a poet anymore. So it just breaks my heart that the education system takes those kids and does something so bad to their, first of all, confidence, especially the confidence of the girls, uh, but also to their creativity, to their individuality, in the name of making them normal, in the name of making them a homogenous block of people. It is, to me, very alarming to see the loss of individuality. Um, so how do, we, how do we keep creativity? Yes, I think art plays an important role there. It should, and literature should play an important role too. I, I, I share those comments very much so. Um, what did I skip? I'm so sorry. The Sufi uh, uh, question and, and, and the role of women. I totally hear what you're saying, and, and that's, that's one of the reasons why I have so much respect for, for, the, for the essence of um, Sufi philosophy, where there's insanı kamil, as we say in Turkish, is genderless. You can be a man, you can be a woman, but you can still reach that um, more supreme level of consciousness according to the teaching. So there's no gender discrimination in the philosophy. However, by solely looking at that, we can't say that there's gender equality in that particular country, even in that particular community. What troubles me is, of course, on the one hand, we have very strong Turkish, Kurdish, Arab, Iranian, women of all backgrounds, Alevi, you know, very strong vocal women in all areas. For instance, in Turkey, women are very visible in, in media, academia, in the business world. You will come across very strong personalities. But there's one area in which women are almost non-existent, and that is politics. At the local, regional, national level, it's a very male-dominated world. And the very few women who exist in that area have to defeminize themselves in order to look strong and tough. Um, so as, if we can't exist in, in politics, and how are we going to do that? Maybe you will disagree with me, but we do need quotas. We need, we need an additional incentive, because otherwise things are not changing with this pace, with this slow pace. The world of politics and the world of decision-making, unfortunately, is very patriarchal, even in countries where we have Sufi traditions, more egalitarian traditions. Mm -hmm. Politics dominates everything, I'm afraid. Thank you. Um, I think we perhaps might take the last three. Really, last you, three? Okay. All right. Do. okay. <laughs> right. Uh, all right, the last four. Let me... <laughs> <laughs> Hand there, all right. One person here, um, perhaps you, a person in the in the middle row here, and then um, person there um, in the um, pale green sweater. Is that an accurate description? In about that. That's right. Yes. No. You. Yes. And then the person here. Is that okay? And then, I'm sorry, I'm very, very sorry to disappoint everybody else. So, let's start. Over here, please. Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to thank uh, the organizers of this event and also my colleague and editor who introduced me to your books, and that's why I'm here with all excitement. Uh, you have talked about uh, the uh, issue of identity and uh, the importance of uh, the, 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 how language and people travel from one place to other place. 
and you also talked about the confusion uh, in Turkey. And I, I, I listened to this a lot from you in your books. Uh, as I, I, if I'm not wrong, in, in For Three Rules of Laugh, there's a, there's a, a, a page that uh, you quote uh, from Shams, who yes. says, having roots nowhere. I wanted to know that as you lived in different places like Turkey, England, and uh, United States, uh, have you ever felt this importance of identity and rule of roots in your life personally? Thank you. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Okay, it's in the middle now. Here. Yeah. Right here. Okay, thank you. Hi. Um, I'll keep it brief. Uh, my name is Abir. Um, thanks for the talk. And while we're talking about expanding our minds, can I just point out there's so many minds that you expand, you know, your, your talks and books. Um, my question is, when you come across people who are very sure about things that they couldn't possibly be sure about, whether it be somebody really religious or somebody, you know, um, an atheist or somebody. Um, what do you do in that sort of, in, how do you engage them and can they even be engaged? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. There's two people over here, I think. That's right. Hi, thank you. That was very thought-provoking. Um, so you talked about how history goes in circles. So I just wanted to think, what, what's your thought about the impetus for our backward slide? Um, for instance, how locker room talk didn't end a campaign. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. Um, I just wanted to ask on a very micro level, you know, what you mentioned about schools in Turkey is what I face in my country as well. So your kids go to school, but then they're faced with these kind of things. Which, your country? Uh, I'm from Pakistan. You're from Pakistan. Yeah. So how so can we... Yes, exactly. Um, if, as parents, you want your kids to have a certain worldview or to be exposed to that, but then they yeah. go to school and they meet so many people who... Uh, yeah. you know, kind of warp that in their minds. So how maybe did, how did you deal with that or what advice would you give? Thank you parents? so much. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the, the, the question about roots and, and belongings, I, I have been criticized so many times in Turkey, accused of being rootless. And um, what they don't understand is, you, you, and, and again, maybe going back to the Sufi imagery, you know, the Sufis, they used to talk about this tuba tree, which was supposed to be upside down with its roots up in the air. You can have roots, but still those roots can be up in the air and connected to many places. Roots don't need to be necessarily just buried in one, one, one place. Um, and even, even under the ground, roots expand in so many directions. They're not static. So our whole imagery of roots can be, in fact, challenged. Um, one can love one's country very much and at the same time be very critical of lots of things happening there. We, we have to say these things again and again because otherwise they're saying, you know what, they don't, they don't like their country. That's why they're criticizing. No, if you, if you care about your country, if you want things to be better, you will be even more critical. It, it shows that you, you, you want to... You want to make a difference. You care about people who are maybe um, living elsewhere, but you feel connected to them. It, it, it's a sign of caring. I, I've always believed that it's a good thing for writers to be an insider-outsider. I'm insider enough of an insider to, to, to love my motherland, to, to love this language, um, and to feel attached to the people, so deeply emotionally connected to Istanbul and to so many things. But I'm enough of an outsider intellectually, perhaps, to take a, 
just a step, just one single step back and try to look at things from that distance and maybe question the things that some other people might not be questioning because they take it for granted. So that insider-outsider is a, is a good but very lonely position, but it's the best position, I think, for artists and writers, both part of the culture but at the same time part of the world. You are both from somewhere and from everywhere. Um, so I believe in, 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 rather than one identity, many, many, many belongings and having many roots, uh, having many cities, many homelands, many homes. Why not? It's possible. Here we are speaking in another language. Many of us, I think it's our second language, right? This is not the language we grew up with. But the mind knows no such, such limits. When we dream, we dream in more than one language because it's, everything can be, can be mixed and so is our, our pluralistic belongings. That's how I like to keep, keep the roots, think of the roots. Um, with regards to certainty, I, I totally share your, your criticism. Uh, uh, what do we do? I mean, people who are very certain of, of their own little um, tribes, and also there's safety there. There's a certain comfort there. It's very difficult to, to challenge these people unless they go through some existential crisis. Nonetheless, to keep the dialogue open, because even children who have grown up in extremely religious or extremely atheistic families are aware that there's another story that I, have, that I haven't heard yet. You know, I have met many people like that who come from very, very religious upbringings, and yet they are not exactly the, the replica of their parents. As human beings, we are constantly questioning, in fact. The problem is we don't share it with our parents or we don't share it with the people around us because collective energy affects us. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a coincidence that fascism is a, is a collectivistic disease. You need millions, you need thousands, you need multitudes, and that energy makes us more timid. If all our friends are quite xenophobic, we will become xenophobic. It will affect us. But when we are alone, when we are an individual in our own inner space, that's why I think the inner space is so important. And unfortunately, it's so abundant in today's world. When we retreat into that inner space, we know that there's more to life than what we have heard and seen from our own little tribes. So I think we need to build that inner space constantly, and we do that through books. We, need, we do that through communication, um, by being open-minded, listeners. We have to be good listeners. So yes, the education system, and I, we have all gone through that education system that your uh, children or next generations perhaps in Pakistan or Turkey will go through, but it doesn't mean that we all became same uniform individuals, right? We, we still brought out their, our own individuality. How did we do this? We watched movies, we read books, we were passionate about ideas, ideals. Interestingly, paradoxically, countries in which there isn't proper freedom of speech, in those lands, art matters even more. Books do not evaporate too fast. They become part of people's lives. Words matter. Stories matter. So I, I, I do have... Uh, maybe more faith in, in, in the role of, of what we can do as individuals. I don't think we should expect much from the states, from the governments, especially in countries like Turkey and Pakistan, but from individuals, from the civil society, yes, we can, we can be much more hopeful when we look at our peoples because even under very difficult circumstances, there are amazingly beautiful souls that come from such lands. Uh, despite the difficulties, and that should give us more hope. Okay, thank you. Um, 
I'm sorry we're going to have to stop at this moment. So it's my pleasure to thank Elif, but I want to thank Elif in particular for two things. The first of all is the richness of her published work, which is going to be available outside this lecture theatre, and the pleasure that that work has given to millions of people. But I also want to thank her very sincerely for the work that she has done here this morning in taking part in this dialogue, in answering questions, and actually giving us a, a sense of how all the debates that have been talked about here, have been, mentioned, have been mentioned here this morning, can be taken forward, can be discussed. It's been such an inspiration to see a public space at work. And thank you very much, Alef, for, for doing this, and thank you for your questions and for taking part Absolutely. in it. Thank you.